Welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast for Wednesday, July 22nd, 2020. I'm Steve Baldwin, and today's show includes comments from LA County Board of Supervisors Chair Pro Tem Hilda Solis, followed by an update on COVID-19 led by Dr. Barbara Ferrer, Director of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Thank you for listening, and to keep up with our department on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LA Public Health. Also, when you have a minute, leave a review of the podcast in your podcast app. And now, here's Supervisor Solis. Thank you very much, and good afternoon, and thank you for joining today's press briefing. Los Angeles County continues to see significant increases in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths from COVID-19. In fact, although this crisis has been before us for several months, the numbers we're seeing are unlike what we've endured early on in March and April. It is more serious and requires a serious response. That is why yesterday the LA County Board of Supervisors took several actions to leverage the full extent of the county's resources to respond to the crisis. The Board of Supervisors approved the allocation of $1.2 billion we received from the federal government through the CARES Act. This is funding that is going right back into the community. $301 million will be used for COVID-19 testing and contact tracing. $160 million will be used to supply grants for small businesses and ensure employers comply with worker protection requirements. $85 million will be dedicated to ensuring food security for residents. And $100 million is allocated to rent relief. At my direction, the plan includes $15 million for childcare, which I will ensure is prioritized for essential workers. Through this funding, we'll be able to continue to meet the moment by bending the curve of COVID-19 and prioritizing our most disadvantaged communities for a more resilient LA County. We took action to ensure equitable education access for youth. A recent publication by USC Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism revealed that one in four families with school-aged children in LA County lack the technology resources for distance learning. This represents approximately 250,000 families whose children are likely to fall behind in educational attainment during the crisis. Some technology companies have stepped up. For example, Amazon provided 2,000 tablets to children in LA County to bridge the digital divide. I applaud their commitment to addressing this inequity and urge other companies to do the same. I have been very clear from the beginning that this health crisis has revealed and exacerbated disparities faced by black and brown communities. This extends to children through economic disparities, the digital divides, and troubling the health impact. There have been cases of multi-system inflammatory system among children in LA County. This is a condition related to COVID-19 where different body parts can become inflamed, including heart, lungs, kidneys, brain, skin, eyes, or gastrointestinal organs. And 73% of those children are Latino, meaning they bear a disproportionate burden of COVID-19 too. This is troubling information, but the message is clear. COVID-19 affects everyone, including children. And it's also clear that COVID-19 affects brown and black people more than others. And it is for that reason I urge our communities to continue doing everything possible to protect each other. Our Department of Public Health and I will continue doing the same. Yesterday, the board also approved my motion to identify funding to continue the LA Justice Fund. 
the LA Justice Fund offers free legal aid to immigrants facing deportation who cannot afford an attorney. This is a critical service, especially given that 3.5 million individuals in LA County were born in another country. We have a duty to protect our residents, including through partnering with nonprofit legal service providers. This has been made more important by the COVID-19 pandemic. When an individual is detained by federal immigration authorities, they're separated from their families, their communities, and face the harsh possibility of being deported. Jails and detention facilities are where the virus spreads the most. The LA Justice Fund helps limit who sees the inside of a, a detention center and their likelihood of contracting COVID-19. And I'm pleased to share that the second round of the LA Regional COVID-19 Recovery Fund launched, which includes 3.2 million in grants funded by LA County, the City of LA and Union Bank Foundation. Micro entrepreneurs, small businesses and nonprofits are eligible for the grants, which range from $5,000 to $15,000. For more information, please go to lacovidfund.org or call 833-238-4450. The application for this round is open until this Friday, July 24th. Thank you all. And now I would like to introduce Dr. Barbara Ferrer. Uh, thank you, Supervisor Solis and the entire Board of Supervisors. Your leadership in this crisis has elevated the voices of the most vulnerable residents, including those who are most at risk at illness as a result of COVID-19. And good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to use this time today to give you a big picture update of the situation we're in as it relates to COVID-19. But before I do, I want to start with a snapshot of what we've seen this week. We've reported again single-day highs of hospitalizations. The more than 2,000 people who are right now so sick that they need care in a hospital are in my thoughts, as are their loved ones. I know it's incredibly difficult and heart-wrenching for all of you right now. We've reported nearly 6,000 cases so far in the first two days of the week, and that doesn't include the new cases that I'll report to you in a moment. And we've seen that nearly 60% of the cases uh, we're now seeing are among our young adults, and that hospitalizations are also increasing among young adults. But 75% of those who are dying right now are older adults. This is all extremely distressing. Remembering that these numbers add up to thousands of individual people grandmothers and grandfathers, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, cousins, friends, and neighbors. In just a moment, I'll provide today's update, which still reflects behaviors that we were all engaging in about three weeks ago. And that includes the fact that so many people were out and about. Since then, we have renewed some of our closures and we've hit a pause on some indoor activities. This week, I believe, can be a critical turning point in determining whether our collective efforts are beginning to take us in a better direction. The stakes are really high. Later in today's presentation, I will show you a new analysis of the leading causes of death in LA County, and I'll do a fact check on how deadly COVID-19 is when we compare it to influenza or flu. I'm also going to provide an update on our rolling seven-day averages of key metrics that are on our recovery dashboard and equity data 
and a more detailed look at the ages of those who are being infected and hospitalized, along with some additional data on mortality or deaths. And finally, I'll do a brief update on school reopenings. I am sad to report 64 additional deaths today. 45 of the people who passed away are over the age of 65, and 40 people over the age of 65 who passed away had underlying health conditions. 18 people who died are between the ages of, six, of 41 and 65, and 16 of the people who passed away in this age group had underlying health conditions. Information on the one death reported by the City of Long Beach is available at longbeach.gov. This brings the total number of deaths to 4,213 in LA County. 92% of the persons who have died from COVID-19 had underlying health conditions. And for the 3,927 people who passed away where race and ethnicity has been identified, 40% are Latinx, 26% are white, 15% are Asian, 11% are black, slightly less than 1% are Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, and 1% identified with another race ethnicity. To all those grieving, I send my heartfelt condolences. May the memories of our community members be a blessing to those who knew and loved them. We're reporting 3,266 new cases today. This brings the total number of cases in LA County to 164,870. These cases include 6,843 cases reported by our partners in the city of Long Beach and a total of 1,758 cases reported by the city of Pasadena, both of which have independent city health departments. We're reporting that among the new cases, among the total cases, 942 are confirmed cases among people experiencing homelessness. And among these cases, 328 were referred to isolation and quarantine sites where they could appropriately, appropriately isolate for the duration of their illness. There are 2,207 confirmed cases of people who are currently hospitalized. 27% of the people are confirmed cases in the ICU, and 19% are people who are on ventilators. This is the fourth day in a row that daily hospitalizations exceed 2,200 people. We have investigated a total of 1,108 residential congregate settings and non-residential settings with at least one confirmed case of COVID-19. Currently, we're investigating uh, 767 uh, settings, uh, and we've closed investigations at 341 sites. Residential settings include nursing homes, assisted living facilities, shelters, treatment centers, supportive living, and correctional facilities. And non-residential settings include workplaces, food and retail, and educational settings. The total number of confirmed cases uh, that occur among people in institutional settings is 24,367. 13,743 of the confirmed cases are among residents and 10,624 are among staff. I'm sad to report that 2,101 residents in institutional settings have died from COVID-19. 1,879 people who died resided in our skilled nursing facilities. 
And please know that we extend our prayers to all who are mourning the passing of their loved ones. Of the 63 newly reported deaths today, excluding Long Beach and Pasadena, 13 were for people who lived uh, in our skilled nursing facilities. We're reporting uh, 3,341 confirmed cases at some point in the jail facilities. 2,988 are among people who are incarcerated, and 353 are among staff. The Sheriff's Office is reporting uh, today for their facilities 27 inmates who are positive, 830 people who are incarcerated and have recovered, 65 people who are incarcerated on an, and are in isolation, and 1,601 who are quarantined. There's now 194 cases in the state prison, 136 are among people who are incarcerated, and 58 are among staff. And there are 757 cases in the federal prison facilities. 741 are among people who are incarcerated, and there are 16 among staff. We're now reporting 103 cases in our juvenile facilities, 38 are among youth, and 65 are among staff. There's 1,578,614 people that have been tested and had results reported in LA County. I wanna congratulate everyone who's worked so hard to extend testing availability uh, to residents throughout the county. 10% of the people who have been tested over uh, this long period of time have been positive. The hardest part of my day is reporting on those who have lost their lives to COVID-19. And I can't even imagine the heartbreak that follows for their families. Today, I wanna to put into context the loss of lives, especially in light of some of the skepticism that we all face uh, from people who are claiming that this virus is nothing to worry about. Unfortunately, it's just simply not true. In fact, COVID-19 appears to be on track to becoming one of the leading causes of death in LA County. In this slide, you see, the, you see in yellow the leading causes of death from January to June of last year. That's the most recent uh, full data that we have. And you can see that coronary heart disease was the top, was the top leading cause of death with nearly 6,000 deaths that were attributed uh, in the first six months of last year. And you can see in the first six months of this year, COVID-19 represented by the red bar on the right has killed more than 3,400 people through June. And you heard that actually through today, the number's higher at 4,213. And while this isn't a perfect comparison, because this year's data for other leading causes of death has not yet been finalized, it does appear that COVID-19 is on track to claim more lives in LA County than any disease except coronary heart disease. It's killing more people than Alzheimer's disease, other kinds of heart disease, stroke, and COPD. And then there's flu. I'll take the next slide. I'll take the next slide. This slide shows us two things. One is that flu is a dangerous virus in its own right, but it, that it's also nowhere near as deadly as COVID-19 has been to date. And first, some context. The yellow bar on the left shows you flu and pneumonia-related deaths for the periods of October last year to May of this year, because this is what we consider as flu season. 
You can see that in the fall, winter, and into the spring, eight months of 2019 and 2020, the flu and pneumonia killed 1,521 people. And this is a tragic death toll and a sobering reminder of the importance of everyone getting their annual flu shots. But in the first six months of 2020, COVID-19 killed more than twice as many people as the flu did over an eight-month period at 3,402. And I'd like to emphasize that unlike flu, there is no vaccine for COVID-19 at this time. One of the reasons that we're working so hard to flatten the curve and slow the, and slow the spread of COVID-19 is to limit the strain on our healthcare system so that when flu season arrives in a few short months, we'll be able to contain uh, and, and uh, slow the spread of COVID-19 while we know that our hospitals will also need to care for people with influenza. And as you know, we watch the daily metrics very carefully and we report to, we report to you on the metrics a few times a week. But it's also important to look at trends in the larger context of a seven-day period. And so I want to provide the brief update now on some of the indicators we're tracking and the changes we're seeing over time. I'll take the next slide. <coughs> this graph shows the seven-day average of daily reported new cases of COVID-19, which, as you can see, continues to increase. Just two weeks ago, on June 22nd, the seven-day average of new cases was 1,763. We're now averaging 2,952 new cases every day. That's almost twice as many cases as we reported a month ago. And it's higher than it's been at any point during the pandemic. The seven-day average paints a clear picture about what's happened over the last few weeks, which is that here in LA County, we continue to see a sharp increase in community transmission. Take the next slide. It's important that we continue our focus on the fact that our native populations, black and Latino neighbors, are experiencing higher COVID-19 infection rates and poor outcomes. I've noted this before, that the reality of the pandemic is that people of color and people in high poverty areas are bearing the brunt of this horrible virus. Systemic racism and discrimination remain root cause drivers of the inequities we see in the rates of serious illness and death. Take a look at the yellow line. This is where you'll see that for Latinos Latinx community, the case rate is more than twice the case rate of white residents. And the steep increase is very different than what we're seeing for any other uh, population group. Black, rep black residents represented by the green line are 25% more likely to be infected than white residents in LA County. I'll take the next slide. Uh, next, we turn to differences by community poverty rate. On this slide, the yellow line shows the case rates for communities with the highest rates of poverty. And once again, you'll see that these communities continue to experience two and a half times more cases than communities with little or no poverty. And unfortunately, as I've noted before, a lot of this disproportionality can be traced to the fact that a significant number of essential workers are low income and are people of color. We continue to work every day to respond to workplace complaints and enforce the reopening protocols that we put in place to protect workers 
from having unnecessary exposures at their work sites. Our protocols for the sectors that are open are written as legal requirements and they're not recommendations. We set up a complaint line where violations can be reported and we've deployed dozens of health inspectors to follow up on potential violations. Compliance with these protocols need to, needs to be a priority for all businesses that, that are open. It's only through compliance with the order uh, that requires physical distancing, infection control, the use of face coverings, heightened cleaning, that we can continue to make sure that businesses can stay open because this ultimately is what will help us get back to slowing the spread of COVID-19. I'll take the next slide. Here you can see that people who live in communities with the highest rates of poverty are also seeing the largest percent increase in cases this last month. I mean, huge difference. Once again, we see it on the trend line and we also see it just when we compare the percent change in the daily averages. I'll take the next slide. Um, this slide also shows us that the largest increase in cases is among young adults, those who are between 18 and 29 years of age. You can also see that teenagers and adults between the ages of 30 and 49 are also seeing large increases in cases. And this reflects what we're seeing in terms of hospitalizations. Those people that are, in, that are younger are being hospitalized at a higher rate than ever before. And I'll have some more detail on that in a moment. But I'll take the next slide. Uh, this slide shows the seven-day rolling average of the daily positivity rate over time, which has flattened out at just about or below 8.5% since July, 5th, July 1st. Uh, this is good news uh, for all of us because the positivity rate helps us understand how widespread our community transmission is. And as you can see, the fact that we're leveling off is encouraging. I wanna note that at the beginning of the pandemic, we were almostly testing people who were symptomatic and we had a low amount of testing that was available. Our positivity rate was really high, about 15% in early April. It dropped significantly and we'd like to see it drop again. Like we've said, younger people are being hospitalized at rates we haven't seen before. And I'll take the next slide. This slide uh, breaks down our hospitalization data by more precise age groups. And we can see by comparing this past week to the number of hospitalized patients a month ago, we see that children and youth have had a 50% increase, the largest increase in the number of hospitalizations, followed by people in the age group of 41 to 64 and 18 to 40 year olds. What's important also to note is that the group uh, that are of people that are 65 and older had the smallest increase in their percentage of, uh, of hospitalizations. And this should be a reminder as well to parents and caregivers that your children are susceptible to the virus. Uh, please, everyone over two years of age needs to wear their face covering, practice physical distancing, and stay apart from people who aren't in their household. I know it's difficult and frustrating and stressful, but these are serious health consequences for those who aren't able to be protected uh, from the virus. And mostly uh, at times it's from the actions of other people. The next slide, please. This slide shows us the past seven day average of daily deaths. And you'll note that uh, it deaths are on a downward trajectory still, 
Uh, but I want to uh, point out that we've had a significant rise the last week, um, and we're worried that deaths might continue to increase because we have a lot of people that are in the hospital. Uh, we've had, on average, about 30 deaths a day for about a month, uh, but these deaths add up quickly, and for every family that loses a loved one to COVID-19, it leaves a void in their lives that they will never be able to fill. The next slide. Uh, this slide shows that we've uh, seen a decrease uh, in deaths in our institutional settings, and, that, and that's the white line. Um, and I want to make sure that we maintain that decrease in deaths that were happening, uh, at, at, as you can see, uh, in late April and May uh, at a really excessive rate in our skilled nursing facilities. Um, nonetheless, uh, uh, the July data that you're seeing at the end uh, that shows that this really big drop, that's just provisional data, and uh, it's unlikely that we had a drop at all uh, for the first couple of weeks in July. We'll take the next slide. Um, this slide I, I, we show every week, and it just serves as a reminder uh, that our death rates uh, are marked by a lot of disproportionality. Uh, black and Latino residents in the county are still twice as likely as white residents to die of COVID-19. Um, and again, uh, folks who are living in areas with high rates of poverty are still four times more likely to die from COVID-19 when we compare this to residents who are living in communities with the highest incomes. It's a distressing and disheartening reality, and we have to pledge ourselves to address these inequities uh, because they're driving trends that are translating into disproportionate amount of uh, death and disability in some of the communities that have the least resources to be able to bear the brunt of this illness. I do want to quickly give an update on uh, school reopenings in LA County because I know there's a lot of interest in uh, what the department is going to be able to do uh, as we adhere to California Department of Public Health's directive that our schools in our county, along with 31 other counties on the state's monitoring list, cannot resume in-person learning uh, next month. I do want to note that the governor has allowed for local health officers to consider granting waivers to school districts and private schools that allow for the reopening of in-classroom instruction for students in grade TK through grade 6. The request for this waiver must be made by a district superintendent or a school board or, in the case of a private school, by the director of that school, and it must be accompanied by support from key stakeholders, including labor partners, parents, and community-based partners. Once the waiver is requested, our department will consult with the California Department of Public Health to assess the request and review regional epidemiological data regarding trends in cases and deaths and the capacity within the regional hospital system. We'll be working with our school districts to ensure that when schools are reopened, they'll be able to adhere to existing directives in our health officer orders on distancing, infection control, and managing outbreaks in a school setting. Every week, in partnership with the Los Angeles County Office of Education, I speak with the superintendents from the 80 districts in the county, and together we are planning for the day when all of our children can safely return to their classrooms. As a former uh, high school principal, a parent, and a grandparent myself, 
I am aware of the stress and anxiety that so many people are feeling. We're going to do our best to use the available data and the, and the science to ensure that the health and well-being, both physical and emotional, of all children, teachers, school staff, and all of their families remains the top priority. We're hoping by the end of this week or early next week, interested school districts can go ahead and apply for these waivers. The process will be well-defined and transparent, and we're going to work closely with the state to make decisions in a timely manner. And in closing, uh, when I talk about schools reopening or other sectors of our community and our economy coming back online, I feel hope for the future. Similarly, I hope that this week marks a turning point and that our considerate, kind behaviors and the actions we've taken in the past two weeks are going to translate into healthier, a healthier community that can resume its recovery journey. Reopening all our schools and other sectors of the economy depends on us being able to do what we did before. Work together, all of us, so that we slow the spread by flattening the curve. I know it's hard, I know it's a sacrifice, especially on beautiful summer days, but I'm asking people to stay home as much as possible. Avoid gathering with people you don't live with. I understand that this is a challenge and we all want to see our friends and our family that we don't live with. But if we continue to gather for barbecues, pool parties, dinners, and other events, it's very hard to slow the virus. Wear your face covering. Almost every day, there are new studies that show how much wearing a face covering protects those around you. And there are a couple of new studies that are suggesting that cloth face coverings may actually offer some protection to the wearer as well. I know they could be hot, I know they're uncomfortable, but when you wear one, it's an act of caring for others. As a reminder, a lax attitude to this virus can be deadly for someone you love or for yourself. You could be infected, not know it, and pass the infection to someone you love who may not be as lucky as you. At the beginning of the briefing, I mentioned that young adults are driving the high rates of new infections, but that older adults are the ones who are dying. This is very serious and very real. P please think about those you love and those that others of us love before you disregard our public health directives. And now I'll turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Christina Galley, who will provide updates from the Department of Health Services. Good afternoon. Today I'll focus on two things, the DHS hospital bed demand model and our efforts to ensure equity and access to testing within vulnerable communities as a follow-up to my more in-depth comments last week. With respect first to the model, the number of new patients with COVID-19 that are requiring hospitalization across the hospitals in Los Angeles County increased through the middle of last week and is now flat or potentially starting to decrease. This number of new daily hospitalized cases, while plateaued, is plateaued at a substantially higher number than was seen in the case rate in April. Because of a predictable level of daily variability in the data, it moves around a great deal from day to day. We will need to watch the trends over the next couple of days before we know if that new daily case rate is in fact decreasing. 
The effective transmission number, or R, that I've spoken of previously is now modeled at 0.94 with an uncertainty ranging between 0.82 and 1.07. Because the range spans one, both increases or decreases in daily hospitalizations are possible moving forward. This is consistent with the pattern of a flat or possible decrease in new hospitalizations. As we have discussed before, we are seeing changes in the characteristics of the epidemic in Los Angeles County, some of the points in which Dr. Freer just touched on. And these are now being reflected in the model whose slides are posted online. The COVID-19 epidemic, as we know, is now shifted to focusing on a younger population than was seen earlier in the pandemic. For some types of patients with COVID-19 that we used to treat with ICU level care and with mechanical ventilation, it is possible now that we have more experience in treating people and additional studies. It is possible now to be able to effectively treat them without the use of mechanical ventilation through the use mainly of high flow oxygen. Because of these changes, there has been a decrease in the projected number of the utilization of ICU beds and mechanical ventilators relative to the number of patients that require hospital admission for COVID-19. This is a change versus what the model was using as an estimate earlier in the pandemic. These changes are now incorporated into the model and are reflected in a slightly revised revision down in the number of ICU beds and ventilators needed. Specifically, it's a 10% decline in the projected number of ICU beds for any given rate of hospitalization and a 25% decline in the use of mechanical ventilation than what would have been expected a few months ago. Based on the current estimate for R, the current number of available hospital beds and ventilators across the county is likely to be adequate over the next four weeks. The number of available currently staffed ICU beds is more limited and could become inadequate over the next four weeks. I've shared this caution on ICU beds on almost a weekly basis with you. ICU beds remain our most valuable hospital resource. They require a much more intense level of staffing, a specialty training for the nurses and the respiratory therapists and the physicians that work there. And this fact makes them more difficult to ramp up quickly. However, the number of currently available ICU beds that has been available within the county has remained mar remarkably stable over the past several weeks, hovering between 130 and 160 currently available beds on any given day. This is despite the increase in recent hospitalizations and points to the fact that hospitals have staffed up their beds in order to be able to maintain a cushion in ICU bed capacity. If there is a further demand for ICU beds, then hospitals surge plans would need to be implemented to be able to accommodate this additional patient demand. And as I've explained previously, this accommodation of new patient demand could involve a variety of levers, both on the supply side and the demand side. With respect for supply, the main issue is staffing. Physical space and equipment are generally sufficient though specific volumes may vary by hospital, and are not the main limitation of bed capacity. Rather, it is a hospital's ability to safely staff those beds that are, we are watching most closely. 
On the other lever, in terms of reducing demand, this of course includes the ability to be able to reduce elective procedures or admissions. However, the better way to reduce demand for beds is to reduce the transmission of COVID. Study after study have shown that preventing transmission is possible and relies on three main things, masks and face coverings, washing hands, and social or physical distancing. The science on the power of these three things is not debated, they work. Our ability to beat COVID, to maintain our hospital's ability to care for those who need them, to our allow our leaders to continue to reopen businesses, to get our kids back into the classroom, relies on all of our personal willingness to do these things that have been shown to work. Where we are, in, when we are in a position of responsibility for others, whether we're parents, whether we're caretakers of someone who is sick or who might be elderly, whether we're an employer, we have to take seriously also our responsibility to allow these three things to be done in those settings as well for those whose lives depend on it. I'll shift now to focus briefly on testing and then we'll turn it over for questions. As I discussed last week, with the need for COVID-19 testing, the need continues to rise across the county. And the city of Los Angeles and the county, as well as many other stakeholders, are working closely together to be able to ensure that there's testing capacity for all those who need it. This week, there does continue to be availability for testing appointments at all nine of the, counties, the county operated and funded testing sites. Please go to the website, covid19.lacounty.gov slash testing if you need to sign up for an appointment. There's additional information there also about a variety of other sites and access points for testing across the county. In addition, the county is taking a specific approach to expanding access, focusing on hotspot areas, those communities that are most impacted by COVID-19, as I shared more last week. Testing capacity has already increased in the past week at existing test sites in East Los Angeles and Bellflower. Additional capacity will be added at the Pomona site this weekend and at the El Monte site next week. I'm also pleased to share that three of the new planned testing sites that I announced last week will open next week. These three are located in Montebello, Southgate, and Panorama City. Three additional sites in Azusa, Compton, and Downey are still finalizing a start date and we'll announce that soon. These sites represent very important capacity for the high need vulnerable communities, communities of color and low income communities that Dr. Ferrer spoke of again just a few minutes ago that are so disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and have demonstrated inadequate access to testing. Opening up this additional capacity, along with our on-the-ground outreach efforts in partnership with community-based organizations, is critical to reversing these numbers and helps to provide the support that these vulnerable communities need and deserve. If you do think you need a test, please, though, call your provider first. Testing is best done by a provider who can manage your care. You can contact the county's 211 number if you don't already have a provider. 
Also, please be aware that new state guidance from the Department of Managed Health Care requires all commercial health plans to provide testing within their networks for all those who are eligible, and the details are located on their website, but it includes those populations who are deemed eligible for testing according to the state's new guidelines that I spoke of last week. All individuals that qualify for that testing should be provided a test within their plan network within 48 hours of request. Testing at all county and city operated sites is prioritized for people with COVID-19 symptoms, for people who live and work in high risk setting, for those who have had a known exposure to someone with COVID-19, and for essential workers. We do, though, want to reserve this testing capacity for the vulnerable communities in which it's located, for the communities that need it, that have a demonstrated need, and for particularly people that don't already have a right to testing under the new DMHC regulation. In closing, please continue to be safe. Stay at home as much as you can and ensure that you're wearing your face covering when you leave your house. Quarantine for the, floor, for the full 14 days if you've had exposure to someone with COVID and isolate if you have symptoms and stay home. Our individual power to fight COVID is tremendous. What, we each, what each of us do every day matters a great deal and is under our own control. There is power in the actions of every single one of us. With that, I'll turn it over for questions. Thank you. Just a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, it is pressing one followed by zero to queue up here for a question. If you're using a speakerphone, it may be helpful to lift the handset before pressing those keys. But once again, press one zero to queue up for a question. First, we have the line of Patrick Healy of NBC4. Your line is open. Good afternoon, doctors. Thank you so much. Uh, a couple of quick things. Uh, number one for Dr. Ferrer. Uh, in your conversations with the school districts in the county, have any of them indicated that they do intend to seek a waiver? And a model question, um, if indeed R is now below zero, I'm sorry, now below 1.0, uh, what, what's the lag time before we uh, would see the hospitalization uh, start to decrease? Thank you. Okay. Um, thanks a lot, Patrick. And I haven't had any direct conversations about which districts are going to be seeking a waiver. I know that there's a lot of interest uh, in some of the districts about what that process will look like. You know, we're hoping we'll be able to give out that information by the end of the week. And I'm sure on my conversation this Thursday, tomorrow, uh, with the superintendents, I'll, I'm hoping that I'll be able to answer some of their questions and gauge their interests. Again, this is a process that we're collaborating with the State Department of Public Health on as well. So it'll be good to be able to get some feedback about how the superintendents uh, would like uh, to see this process move forward as well. So we'll be using time tomorrow to talk about that. And we'll, we'll probably be able to have something uh, that everyone would be able to see about the process uh, by the end of this week or early next week. But thanks a lot. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Galley uh, for the question on the modeling.
Thanks. There's typically about a three-week window between when the exposure happens and when we see the bulk of the hospitalizations, and then certainly those hospitalizations can continue. However, to the extent that there was already a decrease in transmission a couple of weeks ago, we could start to see a decline in the hospitalizations really at any point. But I would generally use as a rule of thumb that three-week lag. The next question, please. Next, we have the line of Claudia Pesciuta of KNX News Radio. Please go ahead. Hi. Um, has there been any evidence of anyone in L.A. County becoming reinfected with COVID? And also, uh, I'm wondering if any deaths of minors have been reported at this point. And as for the uh, waivers, will there will there be some uh, web page or something where people can see which districts or schools are applying for waivers? Thank you. Dr. Pruitt? Yeah, thanks a lot. Let me let me start with the waiver question. Uh, it'll be a fully transparent process. Uh, what we will be posting is after we've reviewed the materials that were submitted from a school district and we've made a decision, we'll post all of those materials on our website uh, so everyone will see uh, what, the what the criteria was that were used, which will be uniform, and we'll be able to look at both the applications submitted and any responses uh, from the health departments. Uh, in terms of um, deaths among uh, minors or, or children, we have not seen or reported any deaths uh, for uh, children under the age of 18 uh, here in L.A. County. But as you saw, we do have a number of children uh, who are hospitalized at this point and are very sick. So uh, we, we're, you know, we, we, keep, uh, we keep everybody who's sick in our prayers and really hope to avoid... Uh, any any deaths uh, among any children here in L.A. County. Um, and in terms of reinfection rates, you know, this is a big question right now. It's a hard, it's hard for us to actually have uh, the data that really definitively lets us know uh, that there has been reinfection as opposed to somebody who tested positive, was sick for a while, then got better, then tested again, uh, may have had no symptoms when they tested again or started developing symptoms again, uh, whether or not that's really was a reinfection uh, or, in fact, particularly for asymptomatic people, sometimes they're having positive tests for a while after they've recovered, but it's really not about reinfection. It's just about the fact that the tests are fairly sensitive and they're picking up small amounts of virus even though that person isn't actually transmitting. But we, too, you know, uh, are paying attention to the studies that are coming out that are looking at some of the case data around people who, who may have been reinfected. You know, I want to I note that um, until we have definitive answers on how much immunity you have after you've been infected with COVID-19, how long that immunity lasts, uh, we don't have a definitive answer on whether or not uh, you're able to get reinfected. So we tell everybody, even if you've been positive, uh, it's so important that once you recover, you take every single precaution uh, to avoid either being able to infect other people or, uh, in the worst situation, uh, getting sick yourself again or getting infected uh, yourself again. And we'll take the next question. Comes from the line of Luke Money of the Los Angeles Times. Your line is open. 
All right. Thanks for, uh, for taking our questions, as always. Um, looking statewide for a second, um, California today officially passed New York as the state that has the most confirmed cumulative cases of COVID-19. Given what the trend lines are doing locally versus what the trend lines have looked like in New York, increasing versus decreasing, are there any lessons that California or an L.A. County in specific can take from New York to help kind of uh, flatten the curve as they apparently have been able to do? It's such a good question. I think I'll start with the fact that I believe that in California we have twice as many people uh, as the state of New York. So it's hard to do that sort of case number comparison because we actually have twice as many people here. And so we would expect over time that we may in fact have, have more cases than New York because we have a lot more people here. We're also a, a bigger state and a more geographically diverse state. So, you know, I just, I want to lead with that, that uh, a comparison, a better comparison would be to look at our case rates uh, than actually the number of cases. Um, but, but I do like the second question a lot because it really says, how are we learning from each other? New York uh, as a state and both New York City with which uh, we as LA County uh, Health Department are in touch with a fair amount. Um, they have managed to, again, they had a very sharp increase unlike anything we've seen anywhere in California. Uh, but then they came down, uh, they drove their, their numbers down. Uh, they've stabilized at a lower rate than we currently are at. Uh, and we talk with them almost on a daily basis to make sure we're paying attention to what are some of the strategies that they've used. I, I want to note that um, their reopening is happening uh, later than ours because, again, uh, they saw so much community transmission uh, back a month and a half ago. They were still seeing a lot and uh, are just starting uh, some of their recovery journey. So I want to note it's a two-way street. Um, you know, New York State and New York City are also asking us you know, what did we do during our recovery journey? What lessons have we learned uh, from the work we're doing here? I think for all of us, uh, the most important uh, fact that we all have in common right now is that uh, this pandemic has gone on for many months and is likely to go on for many more months. And the issue of trying to make sure that every single person uh, feels like they can remain part of the solution to slowing the spread is something we're all grappling with. You know, we all have seen uh, countless scenes where, where people are in fact uh, not using common sense precautions and it is resulting in increased spread. Uh, and we're all working really hard to figure out how do we work more closely with residents, more closely with businesses, so that people understand that the tools we have, we have to use and we have to use them every day. But thanks for that question. Next question, please. Next, we have the line of Jerry Constant of CBS 2 News. Your line is open. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, I, uh, I want to ask about contact tracing. Do, does the county have a sufficient number of contact tracers? And secondly, how can you reassure the public that the information that they might provide wouldn't put them in any jeopardy? Yeah, thanks. Excellent questions. And I do want to note that uh, we have a dashboard on contact tracing uh, that's up on our website. So if you want to know particulars of how many people we've reached and conversations we've had and, and the number of contacts we've also reached, you know, please feel free to go to our website to get that information. 
Uh, we, we have uh, over 2,000 contact tracers. Um, I think we're, we're really close to almost 2,300 right now. Uh, we have a small group that's still being trained. I want to really thank the governor and the state um, uh, Department of Public Health for sending us uh, 1,000 contact tracers. Uh, most of them have completed the training. I also want to thank uh, the mayor for sending us about 300 contact tracers and then acknowledge uh, all of the other county departments that have also sent over their staff uh, to help with contact tracing, which is why we're able to say uh, we actually have enough contact tracers um, to do the work. I think um, it's really important to note uh, that that question you asked about how we can reassure the public uh, that the information that they're giving us doesn't put them in jeopardy um, is better understood because many people that we talk to are very fearful and, in, in fact, are not willing to disclose essential information that helps us uh, protect the public from this virus. Uh, so I want to reassure people, we never, ever give out anybody's name who's a case. Uh, even when we contact close contacts of the case, uh, we protect that information. It's, it's treated as a medical record. Uh, we actually only have a handful of people even who are contact tracers who have that information. Uh, that information is guarded. Uh, and when we, when we get in touch with close contacts, we just let them know that somebody they've been in contact with was positive for COVID-19. Uh, we do not disclose uh, their name or their address or any identifying information. Um, you know, the public health department adheres to all of the requirements uh, that we have as a, as a medical provider for keeping this information confidential and secure. So I want to urge people, you know, please, please uh, don't hesitate to speak with us. Uh, we will do everything uh, that we can to make sure that not only is all of the information you give us protected, but that we connect you to resources that will help you and your family uh, if you need to either isolate or be in quarantine. So thanks for that question. Next, we have the line of Ryan Carter of Los Angeles Daily News. Your line is open. Uh, hi, doctors. Uh, thank you very much uh, for the time today. Um, so my question uh, today, uh, doctor, is um, uh, after this week, if this week is not that positive turning point um, that you've spoken about today, um, what's your sense on, on how much longer it, it will take for you to kind of know if that's the the turning point if, if this week indeed was a was positive in terms of, of being a, a turning point and 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 how much worse does this have to get or longer does it have to take before we might return to some sort of march level um shut shutdown um is there something imminent based on the numbers that you see um uh, i'm even thinking if, if if something like that could happen this week um so just wanted to throw that out there. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, so those are both excellent questions. And, and I know they're top of mind for just about everybody who probably lives in the county is what, what gives us confidence that we're getting back to slowing the spread and, and what would that look like? And how long do we have to wait to feel pretty confident that we've gotten back to the work that we need to be able to do? Um, one, you know, there, there are, as, as everyone knows, there are a few key numbers that we're tracking. Um, one is uh, cases and the positivity rate that goes along with those cases. 
Um, so we need to make sure that we're not continuing to see a steep increase in the positivity rate, and we're not right now. So I want to say that's why we feel hopeful. Uh, we actually see that we've leveled off. Uh, we've leveled off at a higher number of new cases a day than we'd like to see, but we do a lot of testing here as well. The issue is not to continue to see the steep increases that got us to where we are right now. Uh, the second number that we look at, and, and Dr. Galley talked about this as well, is what's going on with hospitalizations. We had a lot of increase in daily hospitalizations. That can't go on indefinitely without it causing problems, uh, problems in terms of making sure we have available beds, but just as importantly, that we have available beds in the ICU units and available ventilators. Uh, it again looks like that number, as Dr. Galley noted, uh, has stabilized. Um, so these are positive uh, pieces of news for us, um, and, and it is what uh, helps us uh, retain some hope that we are getting back to what we need to do uh, in order to slow the spread. The last indicator that we look at, obviously, is, is deaths, um, and deaths will lag behind. Uh, we've seen a slight increase in deaths. Again, uh, we can't afford to see big numbers here and big increases. Most importantly on deaths is we have to remain very vigilant about what's happening in our skilled nursing facilities. Um, <clears throat> at, there was a time when I was reporting an everyday 50% uh, or more of the deaths that we reported were happening in skilled nursing facilities. That number is down to about below 25% now. We have to keep the number low uh, in, and we have to keep uh, making progress on protecting our most vulnerable residents who are living in those nursing facilities. So that remains a, a very deliberate focus of ours. We've done a great job reducing the number of cases and the number of deaths there. But as there's more community transmission, you can all see how easily it would be to reintroduce virus into those settings. Uh, so we have to remain vigilant. We have to do the testing that's required, to have the SNFs do the testing. And we're here to both help with inspections, technical assistance, uh, and to make sure that, in fact, they have the PPE that the workers need uh, to be safe and provide what is life-saving services. And then the last question, um, you know, are we, gonna, are we planning to shut down this week? No, we're not. Um, you know, I'm going to say that definitively. Uh, we are not planning uh, to shut down this week. Uh, our data is, is somewhat stabilized. A shutdown decision, uh, again, I want to note, uh, is a decision that gets made in, in, uh, in deep conversations uh, with, other, with our other partners. Um, but I, I also want to note that the task in front of us is to be able to thread the needle so that we continue with recovery while we protect everyone's health and well-being. We have to do both at the same time, okay? The solution is not to keep ourselves closed forever until we get a, a vaccine. Uh, the solution is to figure out how to make sure we're doing every single thing possible so that we continue on a recovery journey. That's our aim. We need to work with every single person for that to be the reality. Um, but yes, we, we would like to continue our journey, uh, and no, uh, we have no uh, anticipation this week of ordering uh, a complete shutdown like we had in March. Again, I want to note we work in collaboration with the state. Uh, cities uh, all across our county uh, are able to introduce and implement more restrictive measures than the county does, uh, but there is a high degree of collaboration here, and right now the collaboration is focused on one thing 
getting us all back together to slow the spread. That's the deepest commitment that we make. Uh, it's a joint commitment. I think it's shared by every single person we're working with is uh, we know what we did that worked. Uh, people took a lot of personal responsibility. Businesses took a lot of responsibility as well. Uh, every single person uh, has to be part of the solution uh, for us to be able to move forward. Uh, we're gonna have time for one more question. Comes from the line of Francine Kiefer, Christian Science Monitor. Your line is open. Hi, Dr. Fair. Um, people who want schools to be open point to studies in other countries, other countries who have successfully opened schools without COVID uh, affecting their kids, or studies that show that kids are not as susceptible to getting COVID or transmitting COVID. Um, I'm wondering, how do you view these studies? Well, how should parents and educators think about these studies? I keep hearing them mentioned over and over again as reasons why opening schools would be safe. Uh, thanks a lot. An excellent question. Um, so I, I want to note uh, just a couple of pieces of information. Uh, one is we did do a very thorough review of all the other countries that opened their schools. Um, and it's a mixed bag. So I, I want to note that uh, many countries that open their schools have, in fact, seen transmission uh, associated with their students and with their teachers uh, when they reopened. And in fact, in some, in some countries, uh, almost half of them, they've had some outbreaks associated uh, with reopenings at schools. Uh, so I, I want to make sure that, that we all have the same information, which is schools do reopen, but because um, people who, who uh, work at schools and students who come to schools also live in communities, uh, there can be a fair amount of transmission that happens, even uh, when everyone is trying their best uh, to do the infection control and the distancing that helps minimize that risk. Uh, the second thing is uh, there's definitive information, and you can see from our data, uh, we have over 12,000 uh, children under the age of 17 that are infected with COVID-19. Children do get infected. Children actually get sick, uh, and some children get very sick. So I want to sort of dispel the myth that, you know, there are no children that get sick. There are children who, are, who get sick, and there are children who get infected. Um, and there's uh, evidence now coming out of uh, the most rigorous study that we know of that was done in South Korea that indicates, particularly for children over the age of 10, they're likely to both get infected and infect others at a rate that's similar to what they saw in their adult populations there. It looks like children under 10 from that study have lower rates of both getting infected and passing on infection to others. But there's no studies that say that children don't get infected at this point and don't infect others. Um, I think the task in front of us, uh, which again, we can look to other countries to note, is when does it make sense to reopen schools for in-classroom instruction? With the exception of Sweden, I believe, who never really closed their schools, I don't know of any other country uh, that reopened schools when they were at the height uh, of their surge in cases. Most countries that reopened schools reopened them when they felt like community transmission had either leveled off or it was at a relatively low level. And I say that because it's important to note the relationship between what's happening in the community and then what you can expect or anticipate 
might be happening in schools. Um, we do, like everyone else, acknowledge uh, the tremendous loss uh, that children feel and experience uh, when they're not able to go to school and the tremendous toll it's taken on emotional well-being, I think, for children, for teachers, and for parents. Um, but at the point we are reopening schools, we have to do it in a way that offers as much safety as possible. We do have a waiver opportunity uh, that's here for us for uh, children who are in the grade, in grades, you know, uh, Kate, uh, in grades uh, pre-kindergarten or, you know, uh, transitional kindergarten all the way through grade six. We're going to use that as an opportunity to work with those school districts uh, that feel ready and able uh, to prepare for in-classroom instruction um, and then do a review process with the state around granting those waivers. So it will be a transparent process and it will acknowledge the reality um, that ch schools are very important for children. But the timing is absolutely essential and making sure that those schools are as safe as possible when they do reopen is the other component we have to pay a lot of attention to. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Supervisor Solis for remarks in Spanish. Buenas tardes. Gracias por estar aquí hoy día con nosotros. Yo soy la Supervisora Hilda Solis, representando la Junta de los Supervisores en el Condado de Los Ángeles. El Condado de Los Ángeles sigue viendo muchos casos de COVID-19. Aunque esta crisis ha durado muchos más meses, los casos que vemos ahora son diferentes y los que vemos a principio de marzo y abril. Por eso, ayer la Junta de Supervisores del Condado de Los Ángeles tomó varias acciones para aprovechar de recursos para responder a esta crisis. La Junta de Supervisores aprobó dedicar 1.2 billones de dólares que recibimos de CARES Act a responder a esta crisis. Estos fondos van a ayudar a nuestra comunidad. Más de 300 millones de se usarán para ofrecer más pruebas de COVID-19. 170 millones se usarán para apoyar a los pequeños negocios y a sus trabajadores. 85 millones se dedicarán ofreciendo comida gratis para familias. Y 100 millones de dólares se asegarán a personas quienes necesitan ayuda a pagar su renta. A mil a mi dirección, este plan incluye 15 millones de dólares para el cuidado de niños de trabajadores esenciales quienes son de bajo ingreso. Con estos fondos vamos a poder doblar la curva del COVID-19 y ayudar a nuestras comunidades de bajo recursos. Estamos haciendo todo lo posible para asegurar el acceso a la educación también para los jóvenes. Un estudio de USC revaló que uno de cada cuatro familias con niños en el condado no tienen la tecnología para estudiar en sus casas. Esto representa más de 250 mil familias con niños que no van a poder estudiar durante esta crisis. Algunas empresas de tecnología han dado un paso adelante. Por ejemplo, Amazon regaló 2,000 tabletas para niños de bajos recursos. Les doy las gracias a Amazon por ayudar a nuestros niños. Esto es muy importante porque nuestras comunidades de especial de color son más impactadas. 
Muchos de ellos no tienen la tecnología en sus casas para apoyar a los estudios de sus niños. Niños de nuestras comunidades de colores han sido también impactados en el salud. Ha habido casos de sistema inflamatorio entre los niños en el condado de Los Ángeles. Esto es una condición relacionada con COVID-19, donde diferentes partes del cuerpo pueden inflamarse, incluyendo el corazón, pulmones, la piel y los ojos. Y el 73% de estos niños son latinos, lo que significa que el COVID-19 les está impactando muy fuerte a estos niños. El mensaje es obvio. El COVID-19 afecta a todos, incluyendo a los niños. También es obvio que COVID-19 afecta a los latinos y africanamericanos más que los demás. Por eso les pido que se protejan en cuidarse, también protegiendo a los demás. Ayer la junto, Junta de Supervisores también aprobó mi moción para identificar fondos para continuar la LA Justice Fund. Con el LA Justice Fund, abogados representan inmigrantes sin costo. El fondo ayuda a inmigrantes a evitar la deportación. Esto es un servicio crítico, especialmente dado que 3.5 millones de personas en el condado nacieron en otro país. Tenemos que proteger nuestros residentes. Esto es más importante por la pandemia que enfrentamos hoy día. Cuando autoridades federales de inmigración detengan a una persona, separan esa persona de su familia y de su comunidad. Ponen a estas personas en centros de detención donde hay muchas enfermedades. Incluso las cárceles y los centros de detención son donde encontramos el virus. La, el fondo LA Justice Fund ayudará a limitar exponer a inmigrantes al COVID-19. Por último, quiero decir que el condado ofrece ayuda para negocios pequeños. Tenemos fondos para ayudar a los, a los gastos. Sabemos que muchos negocios pequeños necesitan apoyo en este momento. Para más información, puede visitar a lacovidfund.org o pueden llamar al número en la pantalla. En conclusión, muchas gracias y ahora me gustaría presentar a Jacqueline Valenzuela del Departamento de Servicios de Salud. Muchas gracias. Buenas tardes. Nuevamente, hoy reportamos los números de hospitalizaciones más altos de un solo día. Hemos reportado casi 6,000 casos en los dos días al principio de la semana y no incluye que lo que vamos a reportar en este momento. Hemos visto que casi 60% de los casos son entre jóvenes adultos y las hospitalizaciones en este grupo también están aumentando. Pero el 75% de las personas que están falleciendo en este momento son adultos de mayor edad. Más tarde les mostraré un nuevo análisis de, los, de las causas principales de fallecimientos en el condado de Los Ángeles y explicaré la mortalidad de COVID-19 en comparación con la gripe. Hoy estamos tristes de reportar 64 fallecimientos adicionales. Esto eleva el número total de fallecimientos a 4,213 en el condado de Los Ángeles. El 92% de las personas que fallecieron por COVID-19 tenían condiciones delicadas de salud. 
para las 3,927 personas que fallecieron donde se ha identificado la raza etnicidad, el 47% son latinas, el 26% son blancas, el 15% son asiáticas, el 11% son afroamericanas, menos de un por ciento son nativas de Hawái o de las islas del Pacífico y un por ciento son de otra raza etnicidad. Hoy reportamos 3,266 casos nuevos. Esto eleva el número total de casos en el condado a 164,870. Estamos reportando 942 casos confirmados entre personas sin hogar. 2,207 personas con COVID-19 están hospitalizadas actualmente y el 27% están en cuidados intensivos y 19% están en ventiladores. Este es el cuarto día seguido donde las hospitalizaciones son de más de 2,200 personas. Investigamos un total de 1,108 entornos de congregación residencial y no residencial con al menos un caso confirmado de COVID-19. El total de casos confirmados en entornos institucionales es de 24,367, incluidos tanto el personal como los residentes. 13,743 de estos casos confirmados son residentes y de 10,624 son empleados. La oficina del Aguacil reporta por, para sus instalaciones que 27 personas encarceladas dieron resultados positivos, 830 han recuperado, 65 personas están en aislamiento y 1,601 personas están en cuarentena. Hay 194 casos en la prisión estatal y 757 casos en prisiones federales. Hay 103 casos en las instalaciones juveniles. 1,578,614 personas se han hecho la prueba de COVID-19 y sus resultados han sido reportados al condado de Los Ángeles. El 10% fueron positivos. Hoy queremos poner en contexto la pérdida de vidas, especialmente por el escepticismo que enfrentamos de algunas personas que este virus no es causa de preocupación. De hecho, COVID-19 ahora parece ser la segunda causa de principal de fallecimientos en el condado de Los Ángeles. En este gráfico ve eh, la barra amarilla, que son las la, causas principales de fallecimiento en, eh, entre el mes de enero a junio del año pasado. La enfermedad cardíaca, ah, perdón. La barra María en este gráfico eh, demuestra que la gripe, eh, perdón, muestra la gripe y los fallecimientos relacionados con neumonía durante el periodo de octubre y mayo. Esto es lo que consideramos la temporada de gripe. Ve que en el otoño, invierno eh, y al principio de la primavera, ocho meses del 2019 y el 20, perdón, y el 2020, la gripe y la neumonía mataron a 1,521 personas. Perdón. En este gráfico, perdón. Estamos viendo el caso de los siete días, perdón. 
Can we please move to the slide regarding communities? Let me graphic five. Thank you. En este gráfico, okay, okay, perdón. Es importante que sigamos enfocándonos en el hecho de nuestros miembros de la comunidad nativos de Hawaii y las islas del Pacífico, afroamericanos y latinos están sufriendo tasas de infección de COVID-19 más altas y los resultados más severos. Perdón, estamos viendo eh, cambios en los, en los gráficos. It's not, it's not the same. Um, estamos viendo, eh, perdón, estamos viendo que no necesariamente concuerdan la, la información. Uh, lo que estamos viendo es que estamos eh, personas con que viven en, en personas que viven en comunidades con altas tasas más altas de pobreza eh, son tienen más altas las probabilidades de, uh, de infectarse con COVID-19. Next slide, please. Aquí también vemos que las personas que viven en las comunidades con las tasas más altas, como hemos dicho, están viendo el aumento del porcentaje de casos más alto, altos en el último mes. Next slide, please. Este gráfico nos muestra que el mayor aumento en los casos se da entre jóvenes adultos, los que tienen el 18 y 29 años. También los adolescentes y los adultos mayores entre las edades de 30 a 49 años también ven grandes aumentos en casos. Esto refleja que también vemos en lo que vemos en términos de hospitalizaciones. Las personas de entre 18 y 40 años están hospitalizadas en una tasa más alta que nunca. Next slide. Esta gráfica muestra el promedio de siete días del porcentaje diario de pruebas positivas a lo largo del tiempo, que se, se ha aplanado al 8.5% desde el primero de julio. Estas son buenas noticias porque la tasa de positividad nos ayuda a comprender qué tan extendida es nuestra transmisión comunitaria. Al comienzo de la pandemia, estábamos evaluando principalmente a personas que estaban enfermas y nuestra tasa de positividad era, era del 15% a principios de abril. Esta tasa sigue siendo más alta de lo que quisiéramos, pero ofrece noticias esperanzadoras de que la curva está comenzando a aplanarse en el condado de Los Ángeles y que nuestros esfuerzos y sacrificios están haciendo una gran diferencia. Next slide. Este gráfico muestra datos de hospitalización por grupos de edad más precisos y podemos ver que comparando la semana pasada con el número de pacientes hospitalizados hace un mes, eh, vemos que los niños y jóvenes tuvieron un aumento del 50%, la mayor cantidad seguido por personas de 41 a 64 años y 18 a 40 años. 
Esto es importante ya que el grupo de más de 65 años solo tuvo un aumento del 12.8%, por lo que vemos que este cambio en nuestros casos lleva a más hospitalizaciones entre personas más jóvenes. Este es un recordatorio para los padres y los cuidadores. Sus hijos son susceptibles a este virus. Por favor, todas las personas mayores de dos años deben cubrirse la cara. Todos necesitan practicar el distanciamiento físico y mantenerse separados de aquellos con los que viven. Next slide, please. Este gráfico muestra el promedio de los últimos siete días de fallecimientos diarios. Notará que parece que los fallecimientos están en una trayectoria descendente, pero este es un indicador rezagado y nos preocupa que los fallecimientos vuelvan a aumentar dado el mayor número de hospitalizaciones. Next slide. Este gráfico muestra una disminución de fallecimientos en entornos institucionales marcada por la línea blanca. Sin embargo, vemos aumentar los fallecimientos en entornos no institucionales, la línea anaranjada. Tenga en cuenta que los datos de julio aún son provisionales. Next slide, please. Este gráfico muestra las tasas de mortalidad debido a COVID-19 por raza, etnicidad y nivel de pobreza del área. Los residentes afroamericanos y latinos en el condado, eh, en el condado de Los Ángeles todavía tienen el doble, doble de las probabilidades que los residentes blancos de morir a causa de COVID-19. Las personas que viven en comunidades con las tasas más altas de pobreza también experimentan una carga desproporcionada y aún tienen cuatro veces la probabilidad de morir por COVID-19 en comparación con los residentes con ingresos más altos. Esto sigue siendo una realidad angustiante y desalentadora y debemos continuar abordando las desigualdades que están impulsando estas tendencias en los datos. También tenemos una actualización sobre la planificación para la eventual reapertura de las escuelas primarias. Primero, para ser claros, eh, nos adherimos a la directiva del Departamento de Salud Pública de California, del que las escuelas en el Condado de Los Ángeles junto con otros 31 condados en la lista de monitoreo del Estado, no pueden resumir clases en persona el próximo mes. Pero el gobernador ha permitido que los oficiales de, de salud locales consideren eh, emitir permisos para permit, permitir que distritos escolares y escuelas privadas puedan resumir instrucción en persona para estudiantes en los grados de pre-kinder hasta el sexto grado. La solicitud de extensión debe ser hecha por un superintendente de distrito o junta escolar y debe ser acompañado por datos epidemiológicos que muestren que los casos y los fallecimientos estén disminuyendo. Entre otros requisitos, incluido el apoyo de compañeros, eh, incluyendo los padres, uh, sindicatos y otros socios comunitarios. Cuando se solicita una extensión, nuestro departamento consultará con el Departamento de Salud Pública del, del Estado de California para evaluar la solicitud. Este protocolo también ofrece flexibilidad en las comunidades cuyos datos epidemiológicos muestran avances de aplanar la curva de este virus. También sabemos que es importante abordar los pro problemas de cuidado infantil que nuestras familias enfrentan. 
cada semana en compañerismo con la Oficina de Educación del Condado de Los Ángeles. Nos comunicamos con los superintendentes de los 80 distritos del condado. Juntos planificamos para el día en que nuestros hijos puedan regresar a sus aulas. Sabemos que los padres y cuidadores pueden estar ansiosos porque sus hijos regresen al aprendizaje en persona. Los distritos escolares pueden solicitar estas extensiones, pero al final la ciencia y los datos impulsarán la decisión. Queremos recordarles a todos que hemos aplanado la curva antes y que podemos volver a hacerlo. Todos nosotros, juntos, podemos frenar la propagación de este virus mortal. Gracias. And now we'll move on to um, remarks in Armenian by Nona Oganisian. Barrior Bolorin. Շնորհակալ եմ Վերազգիչ Սոլիսին եւ Վերազգիչ Մարմինների ողջ խորհուրդին։ Ես կցանկանայ օկտագորցել այս 4-շաբթի օրը ձեզ համար ավելի լավ պատկերացում կազմել այն իրավիճակի մասին, որում մենք գտնվում ենք, քանի որ այն վերաբերվում է COVID-19-ին։ Մենք կրկին տեղեկացրել ենք մեկ օրյա բարձր մակարդակի հոսպիտալացման մասին։ Ավելի քան 2000 մարդ, ովքեր այս պահին գտնվում են հիվանդանոցում, խնամքի կարիք ունեն։ Շափաթվա առաջին երկու օրվա ընթացքում մենք հայտնել ենք գրեթե 6000 դեպք, եւ դա չի ներառում այն, ինչ ես կպատմեմ ընդհանրանը քիչ անց։ Եվ մենք տեսանք, որ դեպքերի մոտ 60%-ը երիտասարդների շրջանում է, որը մեծահասակների շրջանում հոսպիտալացումը մեծանում է։ Բայց մահացողների 75%-ը ներկա պահին ավելի մեծ տարեցներ են։ Ներկա իրավիճակը հետեւյալն է։ Այսօր ցավով հայտնում ենք եւս 64 մահվան մասին այս մարդկանցից 45-ը 65 տարեկանից բարձր են եւ 40-ը ունեցել են ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ։ 18 անձի տարիքը 41-65-ն է եւ 16-ը ունեցել են առողջական խնդիրներ։ Սա բերում է ընդհանուր մահերի թիվը 4213-ի Լոս Անջելոս շրջանում։ Էթնիկ պատկանելությունը հետեւյալն է 3927 մարդկանց համար։ 47%-ը լատինոլատինեքս, 26%-ը սպիտակ, 15%-ը ասիական, 11%-ը աֆրոամերիկացիներ, 1%-ը բնիկ հավայան, 1%-ը մեկալ ռասա եւ էթնիկ խումբ։ COVID-19-ով մահացած անձանց 92%-ը ունեն ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ։ Ինչը կարևորում է այն անձանց, ովքեր առողջության լուրջ խնդիրներ ունեն, մնալ տանը եւ հնարավորինը սխուսափել սերտ կապերից։ Այսօր մենք հայտնում ենք 3266 նոր դեպքերի մասին։ Սա բերում է Լոս Անջելոս շրջանի դրական դեպքերի ընդհանուր թիվը 164870 այս դեպքերը ներառում են Long Beach քաղաքում մեր գործընկերների կողմից գրանցված 6843 դեպքեր, իսկ Pasadena քաղաքի կողմից գրանցված 1758 դեպքեր, որոնք ունեն անկախ առողջապահական բաժանումներ։ Մենք հայտնում ենք 942 հաստատված դեպք անոթևան ապրող մարդկանց շրջանում։ Ապաստան գտած 328 անձ պատշաճ կերպով մեկուսացված են, իսկ սերտ կապերը կարանտինացված են։ 11704 դեպք ինչ որ պահի հոսպիտալացվել են, եւ դա բոլոր դեպքերի 7%-ն է։ 
ներկայումս հոսպիտալացվել են 2207 մարդ, որոնցից 27% գտնվում են ինտենսիվ խնամքի բաժամունքում, իսկ 19% միացված են շնչարական ոթապոխիչների։ Ներկայումս կնություններ են կատարվում 1108 ինստիտությոնալ բնակչության հաստատություններում։ Դրանց թվում են ծերանոցներ, ապաստաններ, բուժման կենտրոններ, ոժանդակվող բնակելի Ինստիտությոնալ միջավայրում բնակվող մահացացների 53 տոքոսը բնակվում էին հմուտ բուշքույրական հաստատություններում։ Մենք զեկուցում ենք, որ հաստատված 3341 դեպքեր արձանագրվել են կրիա կատարողական հիմնարկներում։ 2988 136 բանտարկյալ և 58 աշխատակազմ, 757 դեպք վեդրալ բանտերում, 741 բանտարկյալ և 16 աշխատակազմ, 103 դեպք անչապահասների հաստատություններում, 38 բանտարկյալ և 65 աշխատակազմ, և լոսանջելո շրջանի արձանագրված բոլոր նոր publichealth.lacounty.gov. Ավելի կան 1.578.614 մարդ տեստավորվել են և արդյունքները զեկուցվել են լոսանջելոս շրջան, որից տասը տոքոսը դրական են։ Ես ձեզ համար նաև թարմացում ունեմ լոսանջելոս շրջանի դպրոցների վերաբացման վերաբերյալ։ Ինչպես գիտեք, մենք հավատարում են կալիվորնիայի հանրային առողջապահության դեպարտամենտի հրահանգին, որ լոս անժելոր շրջանի տպրոցները ինչպես նաև նահանգի մոնիտորինք ծուցակի 31 այլ կոմսությու հաշվի արնել դպրոցական թաղամասերի և մասնավոր դպրոցների հրաժարականը, ինչը թույլ է տալիս դպրոցը վերասկսել նախադպրոցականից միջև վեցերոր դասարների աշակերտների համար։ Հրաժարման պահանջը պետք է նրայրալ աշխատանքային գործ ընկերների, ծնողների և համայնքային խեկավարների։ Մերժումը հայցելուց հետո մեր բաժամունքում կխոսվի կալիվորնիայի հանրային առողջության դեպարտամենտի հետ հարցումը գնահատելու և տարաշրջանային Մենք կաշխատենք դպրոցական շրջանների հետ ապահովելու համար, որ երբ դպրոցները վերաբացվեն, նրանքը կարողանան պահպանել մեր առողջապահության նախարարի հրամանով արկա հրահանգները, հերավորության, վարակների � Միասին մենք նախատեսում ենք այն օրը, 
երբ մեր բոլոր երեխաները կարող են վերադառնալ իրենց դասասենյակները որպես դպրոցի նախկին տնորեն ծնող ես տեղյակ եմ այն ստրեսի եւ անհանգստության մասին որը շատ էր ընսկում մենք ամեն ինչ անելու ենք որ արկա տվյալներն ու գիտությունը օգտագործենք ապահովելու երեխաների ուսուցիչների դպրոցների աշխատակազմի եւ նրանց բոլոր ընտանիքների առողջությունն ու բարեկեցությունը հույսովենք որ միջև այս շափատվա վերջ կամ հաջորդ շափատվա սկզբին հետաքրքրվող դպրոցական շրջանները կարող են դիմել հրաժարվելու համար գործընթացը կլինի հստակ սահմանափակ եւ թափանցիկ մենք սերտ համագործակցելու ենք պետության հետ ժամանակին որոշումները կայացնելու համար երբ ես խոսում եմ դպրոցների վերաբացման կամ մեր համայքի եւ տնտեսության այլ ոլորտների հետ վերադառնալու մասին ես հույսունեմ ապագայի համար նմանապես ես հույսունեմ որ այս շափատ շրջադարձային պահելինելու որ վերջին երկու շափատվա ընթացքում մեր ուշադիր եւ բարի վարքերը ու գործողությունները վերածվում են ավելի առողջ համայքի որը կարող է վերսկսվել վերականգնման ճանապարհը մեր բոլոր դպրոցներն ու տնտեսությունը նյուս ճողերը վերաբացվելը կախված նրանից թե մենք ինչ են կանում նախկինում միասին աշխատել եւ տարածումը դանդաղեցնելը հարթելով կորը ես գիտեմ որ դա զոհաբերությունը հատկապես այս գեղեցիկ ամառային օրերին բայց մնացեք տանը որքան հնարավոր է խուսափեք հավաքվել մարդկանց հետ որոնց հետ չեք ապրում ես հասկանում եմ որ սա մարտահրավեր է մենք բոլորս կցանկանենք տեսնել մեր ընկերներին ու ընտանիքին որի հետ մենք չենք ապրում բայց եթե շարունակենք հավաքվել խորովածի լողավազանների երեկույթներին ընդրինքներին եւ այլ միջոցառումների համար մենք չենք դանդաղեցնի այս վիրուսը կրեք ձեր ձեմքի ծածկը գրեթե ամեն օր կան նոր ուսումնասիրություններ որ ցույց են տալիս թե որքանը դեմքի ծածկը պաշտպանում ձեր շրջապատողներին եւ այժմ մի քանի ուսումնասիրություններ ենթադրում են որ կտորի դեմքի ծածկերը կարող են որոշակի պաշտպանություն առաջացնել նաև կրողին գիտեմ որ դրանք կարող են լինել թեժ եւ անհարմար բայց երբ դուք հակնում եք դա հոգատար վերաբերմունք է որպես հիշեցում այս վիրուսի հանդեպ մեղ վերաբերմունքը կարող է մահացու լինել ձեր սիրած մեկի համար դուք կարող եք վարակվել չգիտանալով դա եւ վարակել վարակը փոխանցել մեկին ում սիրում եք որը գուցե է եւ ոչ հաջողակ լինի քանց դուք սա շատ լուրջ է եւ շատ իրական խնդրում եմ մտածեք այն մարդկանց մասին ում սիրում եք շնորհակալություն now the remarks are in korean annyeonghaseyo covid-19 관련 이번 주 상황에 대해서 잠깐 언급하도록 하겠습니다 병원 입원자 수가 또다시 가장 높은 수치를 기록하였습니다. 2,000명 이상의 사람들이 지금 병원에서 입원한 상태입니다. 이번 주단 이틀 만에 6,000건의 새로운 케이스가 보고되었습니다. 이 케이스의 60%가 젊은 층에서 나왔으며 젊은 층의 병원 입원자 수도 역시 증가하고 있습니다. 하지만 75%의 사망자 수는 노인층입니다. 
이것은 매우 비통한 일인데 이 수치에는 우리의 할머니, 할아버지, 어머니, 아버지, 형제, 자매, 삼촌, 이모, 친척, 친구, 이웃이 모두 포함되기 때문입니다. 오늘의 업데이트는 3주 전에 많은 사람들이 밖에 돌아다녔을 때 행동이 나타나는 것입니다. 그 후로 몇 실내 액티비티를 영업을 폐쇄하였기 때문에 이번 주는 우리의 노력이 더 나은 방향으로 시작이 될수 있는 중요한 전환점이 될 것입니다. 그러면 로스앤젤레스 카운티 보건당국이 발표한 데일리 리포트를 말씀드리겠습니다. 유감스럽게도 코로나 바이러스로 인해 추가로 64명의 사망자가 보고되었습니다. 이 중에 45명은 65세 이상이고 40명은 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 18명은 41에서 65세 사이이고 이중 16명은 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 롱비치시에서 1명의 사망자가 있었고 자세한 점을 웹사이트에서 보실 수 있습니다. 이로써 로스앤젤레스 카운티에서의 총 사망자 수는 4,213명입니다. 코로나 바이러스로 인해 사망한 분들 중에 92%가 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 오늘로써 3,266건의 새로운 확진 케이스가 보고되었습니다. 이로써 로스앤젤레스 카운티에서의 총 확진 케이스 수는 16만 4,870건입니다. 이 수는 롱비치시에서 6,843건이 있음을 알려드립니다. 파사디나시에서 1,758건이 있었으며 이두 시는 각 보건구가 따로 있음을 알려드립니다. 노숙자들 가운데 확진 케이스 수는 942건입니다. 이들 중 328명이 보호소에서 고립되어 있고 밀접 접촉자는 격리되었습니다. 코로나 바이러스 테스트를 받은 자들 중에 11,704명이 병원에 입원한 적이 있었고 이중 7%는 양성 확진 케이스였습니다. 현재 2,207명이 양성 확진자로 병원에 입원해 있으며 이중 27%는 중환자실에 19%는 인공호흡기에 의존해 있습니다. 1일 병원 입원자 수가 2,200명이 넘은 지 4일이나 되었습니다. 하나 이상의 확진 케이스가 나온 총 1,108개의 거주시설과 비거주시설을 조사하였으며 이중 767개는 현재 조사 중이고 341개는 조사를 마쳤습니다. 이 시설들은 양로원, 전문 간호시설, 보호소, 치료소, 서포트 리빙, 교도소, 직장, 음식점, 상점, 교육기관 등이 포함됩니다. 시설에서의 총 확진 케이스 수는 24,367건이고 이중 13,743명은 거주자이며 16,24명은 일하는 사람들입니다. 시설에 사는 사람들 중에 사망자 수는 2,101명이고 모든 사망자 수의 53%입니다. 대부분이 전문 간호시설에 살고 있었습니다. 오늘 보고된 롱비치와 파사디나시를 제외한 63명의 사망자들 중에 13명, 즉 21%는 전문 간호시설에 관련된 사망이었습니다. 교도시설에서는 총 3,341건의 확진 케이스가 있었고 이중 2,988명은 수감자이며 353명은 일하는 사람입니다. 주정부 교도소에서는 194건의 확진 케이스가 있었고 이중 136명은 수감자, 58명은 일하는 사람입니다. 연방교도소에서는 757건의 확진 케이스가 있었고 이중 741명은 수감자이며 16명은 직원입니다. 소년원에서는 103건의 확진 케이스가 있었고 이중 38명은 수감자이며 65명은 일하는 사람입니다. 
지금까지 LA보건부로 157만 8,614건 이상의 코로나 바이러스 테스트를 받은 것으로 보고되었고 이중 10%가 양성 결과였습니다. 인종과 민족성이 알려진 3,927명의 사망자 중에 47%는 라틴계, 26%는 백인, 15%는 동양인, 11%는 흑인, 1% 미만은 하와이 태평양섬 원주민, 그리고 1%는 기타 인종이었습니다. 작년에 1월부터 6월까지의 1위 사망 원인은 관성 동맥성 심장병이었는데 6천 명가량이 죽었었습니다. 올해 6개월 동안에 코로나19로 인해 사망한 사람들의 수는 3,400명, 오늘까지 4,213명이 코로나 바이러스로 사망하였음을 보게 됩니다. 완벽한 대조는 아니지만 코로나19는 관상동맥 심장병 외에 LA 카운티에서 많은 사람들의 목숨을 앗아갔습니다. 이 수치는 알츠하이머나 다른 심장병, 뇌졸증, 만성폐질환보다도 더 많은 수치입니다. 2019년과 2020년 8개월 동안 독감과 폐렴으로 죽은 사람은 1,521명이었습니다. 그러나 지난 2020년 6개월간의 코로나19로 인해 죽은 사람들은 독감보다 두배 많은 3,402명이었습니다. 또한 독감과는 달리 코로나19에는 백신이 없다는 것을 강조드리고 싶습니다. 바로 이것이 우리가 왜 코로나19의 확산을 늦추기 위해서 노력해야만 하는 이유 중에 하나입니다. 몇달 안에 독감 시즌이 돌아오고 있기 때문에 이때 의료 서비스 시스템이 포화 상태가 되지 않도록 하기 위해서 또한 독감보다 훨씬 치명적인 바이러스를 잡기 위해서 우리는 노력해야 합니다. 언급했듯이 더 많은 젊은 사람들이 병원에 입원하는 수치가 올라가고 있습니다. 한달 전과 비교해 봤을 때 어린이들과 청소년들의 병원 입원자 수가 50%가 증가하였습니다. 65세 이상의 그룹은 단지 12.8%가 증가한 것을 볼때더 많은 젊은 사람들이 병원에 입원하고 있음을 볼수 있습니다. 부모님과 모든 보호, 돌보는 사람들에게 당부하는 것은 자녀들도 바이러스에 감염될 수 있다는 것입니다. 두살 이상의 모든 자녀들은 얼굴 가리개를 사용해야 합니다. 모두 우리 모두가 거리 두기를 설천해야 하고 또한 함께 살지 않는 사람들과 멀리 떨어져 있어야 합니다. 이 명령들에 따르지 않는 사람들에게 심각한 건강 문제가 있을 수 있다는 것을 다시 한번 상기시켜 드립니다. LA 카운티에서 다시 열기 시작하는 학교에 대해 업데이트를 알려드리겠습니다. 아시다시피 우리는 캘리포니아주 보건부의 지침에 따라서 LA 카운터에 있는 학교와 더불어 가주의 31개의 다른 카운티와 함께 다음 달에 직접 대면하는 수업을 진행할 수 없습니다. 그러나 주지사는 지역 보건 담당관이 학교 디스트릭과 사립학교들이 TK에서 6학년까지 학생들이 직접 대면 수업을 받는 것을 허락할지 고려해 보도록 허락을 하였습니다. 이러한 면제 신청은 디스트릭 관리자나 학교 보드에서 신청을 해야 하고 이것은 중요 투자자나 근로 파트너, 부모 또 지역 사회 기반 파트너들이 지원을 해야만 합니다. 면제 신청서가 제출이 되면 저희 부서에서는 가주보건부과 함께 신청서를 살펴보고 지역 병원 시스템 내의 포화 상태 
또 케이스 수, 사망자 수와 관련된 추세를 보고 지역 역학 데이터를 고려할 것입니다. 저희는 학교 디스트릭과 함께 일하며 학교가 다시 열때 현재 보건 담당관의 명령에 따라 거리 두기, 감염, 통제, 발병을 관리하는 데 따르도록 조처를 취할 것입니다. 매주 LA 카운터 교육 부서와 함께 카운티의 80개의 학교 디스트릭 관리자와 대화를 하고 있는데 우리는 함께 우리의 자녀들이 언제 교실로 돌아올 수 있을지를 계획하고 있습니다. 닥터 퍼러는 전 학교 교장이자 부모이고 또 조부모로서 많은 분들이 느끼는 스트레스와 긴장감을 알고 있습니다. 사용 가능한 모든 데이터와 과학 사실들을 이용해 우리의 모든 아이들과 선생님들, 학교 직원들 그리고 가족들의 건강과 신체적 감정적 모든 건강을 우선순위가 되도록 할 것입니다. 이번 주말에 또는 다음 주 초까지 관심이 있는 학교 디스트릭들은 면제 신청을 할 수가 있습니다. 이 과정은 주 정부와 함께 빨리 결정을 내리기 위해서 노력할 것입니다. 이번 주에 지난 2주간의 우리의 배려 깊고 친절한 행동이 회복 단계를 다시 밟을 수 있도록 건강한 커뮤니티를 만드는 전환점이 되기를 바랍니다. 모든 학기와 또 다른 경제 부면들을 다시 여는 것은 우리가 하는 행동에 달려 있습니다. 이렇게 아름다운 여름날 우리가 집에만 있어야 하는 것은 희생이 될수 있습니다. 하지만 우리가 함께 살고 있지 않은 사람들과 만나는 것을 피해야 합니다. 이것은 어려운 일인 줄 알고 있습니다. 우리 친구들과 함께 살고 있지 않은 가족들을 만나고는 쉽지만 우리가 계속해서 박백퓨나 수영장 파티, 저녁 식사 혹은 다른 이벤트들을 위해 만난다면 바이러스를 확산할 수가, 확산을 늦출 수가 없을 것입니다. 우리는 꼭 얼굴 가리개를 사용해야 합니다. 거의 매일 얼굴 가리개를 사용하는 것이 주변의 사람들을 얼마나 보호할 수 있는지 조사 결과가 나오고 있는데 몇몇 조사 결과들은 얼굴 가리개를 사용하는 사람 자신에게도 보호가 될수 있다는 것을 알려주고 있습니다. 우리는 덥고 불편하지만 얼굴 가리개를 사용할 때 배려를 하는 행동이 될 것입니다. 다시 말하지만 미 바이러스에 대한 느슨한 태도는 우리가 사랑하는 사람들에게는 치명적일 수 있습니다. 여러분이 감염이 되고도 모르고 사랑하는 다른 사람들에게 바이러스로 옮길 수 있기 때문입니다. 젊은 층이 새로운 감염층이기는 하지만 더 많은 노인들이 죽어가고 있습니다. 이것은 매우 심각하고 실제적인 일입니다. 제발 사랑하는 사람들을 생각하시고 보건복지부의 지침을 무시하지 마십시오. 감사합니다. Next, Alan Chang from Environmental Health will brief in Mandarin. Thank you. 感谢督察委员，从历史律师和全体督察委员。您在这个至关重要的时刻，代表了我们玉月市群体，尤其是高风险群体的声音。我们感谢你。大家下午好，我想利用这个星期三的下午给我们介绍一下我们目前面临在CO
，这还不包括我一会儿我还要向你们报告的另外的其他数据。住院的病人中有百分之六十都属于年轻人，年轻人的住院率在增加，但人。有百分之七十五的死亡率属于年长者，这让我们非常不安。这些人加起来都是成千上万的人，其中有祖母来了，爷爷、母亲和父亲、兄弟姐妹、婶婶和叔叔，也有我们的朋友，还有邻居。现在的资料都是反映过去三周开放。大家的活动带来的结果，这些室外的活动在我们过去三周中反映出来，给我们提供了目前的这些统计的资料。那么，我们今天会看到，我们今天的行动再会就会在我们以后的几一到三星期中就会反映出来。这些数据非常重要。等会儿我会对新冠病毒与 COVID-19 最重要的致命的原因进行一些新的解释和分析，看看比较一下 COVID-19 与流感等有什么区别。我也会从移动七天的移动平均数据来看看相关的数据，包括年龄、贫困程度对他们的影响。最后。我会谈谈学校的重新开学的方案。每日卷信，很不幸，我们又有六十四人因新冠病毒去世，其中四十五人是六十五岁以上的长者，这四十五人中有四十人已经患有其他疾病。十八人是介于是年龄介于四十一岁到四六十五岁之间的，而在十八人中间有十六人是患有其他疾病的，有一人是来自于长滩市。这样，我们洛杉矶县的总的死亡人数就达到了四千两百一十三人。而在四千两百一十三人中间，有百分之二的人逝者都是患有其他疾病的。因新冠病毒去世的人中，有三千九百二十七人的族裔背景已经得到了分类。我们分类的结果如下：拉丁裔占百分之十七，白人占百分之二十六，亚裔占百分之十五。非一占百分之十一，另外还有太平洋是夏威夷群岛或太平洋群岛原住民占的比例，总共加起来不到百分之一，还有百分之一属于其他族裔。今天我们新添了三千二百六十六例的新的新冠病例，这样洛杉矶县病例的总数就上升到了十六万四千。八百七十例，这中间包括长滩市的六千八百四十三例和帕萨迪纳市的一千七百五十八例，这两个城市都有自己的独立的市卫生部
我们有对九百四十二例来自无家可归的人提供了其中给三百二十八人提供了庇护所，并做了相应的隔离，以及与其他亲人接触的防御措施。目前有两百二十七两两千二百零七人住院，其中。这两千二百零七人中有百分之二十七的人住在加护病房，那百分之十九的人必须使用呼吸机。这是我们已经连续第四天住院的人数超过两千二百人。另外，我们对一千一百零八个大型住宅和非住宅机构进行了调查，这些。调查的机构中，至少有一个是已知新冠病毒患者，其中七百六十七个机构仍在调查中，三百四十一个已经结束了调查。这些机构包括疗养院、辅助居住所、避难所、治疗中心、辅助居住中心、管教所、工作场所、餐饮和零食店及教育中心。机构确诊病例的总数为两万四千三百六十七人，其中居民有一万三千七百四十三人，工作的员工占一万零六百二十四名。我们非常沉痛，因新冠病毒去世人中有两千一百零一人来自机构。而住在这个机机构中的人，总共人数才有一万九千，只有一万九千零八十七人。今天新增的六十四人中，其中有十三人，这个占百分之二十一的比例是来自于熟练护护理中心。我们再谈谈监禁场所。监狱中有三千三百四十一人新冠病例，其中两千九百八十八人为囚犯，三百五十三人为管教人员。洛杉矶县警局送来的统计资料中，警局有二十七个囚犯呈阳性，新添的有八百三十囚犯已经康复，另外有六十五。人囚犯正被隔离，有一千零六百一千六百零一人囚犯正在被监狱。周监狱有一百九十四例，其中一百三十六人为囚犯，五十八人为管教人员。联邦监联邦监狱里面有七百五十七人，其中七百四十一人为囚犯，十六人为管教人员。少年管教所有一百零三人，其中三十八人为囚犯，六十五人为管教人，管教人员。目前，洛杉矶整个洛杉矶县总共收集了一百零五十七万八千六百一十四例的新冠病毒检测结检测结果，其中百分之十的检测样本呈阳性。我们对七天的移动。平均值做了一个统计，阳性的比率为占百分之九点八
死亡率的比较。我在这里稍微给大家提一下，对我来说最难接受的是每天向大家报告有多少人死亡。对那些到现在。人没有对新冠病毒及 COVID-19 有足够认识的人，我这里有非常多的资料可以足够让你们认识到，新冠病毒及 COVID-19 正在我们洛杉矶县成为头号杀手，超过其他的流感、冠心病毒等等。学校的有关学校重启，我要向大家谈一谈学校开学的事情。根据加州公共卫生局的指令，洛杉矶县与加州的另外三十一个其他县都会一起遵循加州的公共卫生局指令，不会在下月重启学生集体上课。加州的州长。但是允许当地的卫生局分别对待不同的情况，对学期或私立学校是否让他们重启六年级以下的学生到教室上课的个别情况提出自己的申请。但每个特例都由学区的教委做自己的决定，而且必须获得关键的支持，这些。包括劳工合作者、家长以及当地社区组织的支持。当提出特别申请时，本部会与加州公共卫生局一起评估申请资料，对当地感染人数、感染趋势的分析，还有其他的。对学期的影响，都会考虑到是否允许学区允许学校重新开启学校的来做决定。我们会和各学区一起对学校重启后的各项卫生管理管理的实施，包括物理距离。感染控制和爆发管理的方面的执行做评估。每个星期，我都和教县教育办公室的合作人一起和前线的八十多个学期和学期管理人员通过电话联系交流。我们都希望让我们的孩子早日的恢复正常的教育。我当过学校的校长，也是母亲、祖母，我十分理解大家的心情。我们会尽量尽尽最大的努力，让我们的孩子获得健康的和各方面的心理方面的教育。我希望这个星期末和下星期。有兴趣的学区教委可以开始着手申请豁免，以便开学
，申请的过程会非常透明。最后，我想说说明几点。当我们谈到学校重新开学时，其他方面可以通过网络重启时，我对未来还是充满希望的。同样的，我希望。这星期是个转折点。我们在过去的两星期内的非常谨慎和小心的配合，给我们带来了比较好的结果。希望我们能够从在重启的道路上继续往前。我知道，对大多数人来说，待在家里是一种牺牲，尤尤其是在目前这种风和日丽的夏天。但是，我还是建议大家尽量待在家里，尽量避免与家人之外的人相聚。我知道这样很难，我知道我们大家都希望与家人朋友相聚，但如果我们继续相聚，我们就会无法阻止新冠病新冠病毒的传播。请大家务必佩戴口罩。几乎每天都有新的研究结果出来，支持戴口罩。戴口罩可以保持你周围的人免于传播、免于感染。我知道戴上口罩又热又不舒服，但戴口罩实际上是一种爱的行为。对待 COVID-19 放松防御，对是会给你所爱的人带来伤害的，因为你不知道你可能已经感染了，但你不知道，你转而又传染给你所爱的人，可能你所爱的人没有你那么幸运，就会得到重病。在开始时，我已经提及过。年轻人的感染人数在上升，可是仍然是年纪大的人死亡占主要部分，这是摆在我们面前的事实。所以，请大家遵守卫生官员令。在你打算不遵循这些规定时，请你一定要想一想，你所爱的人需要你去遵守这些。This concludes press conferences. Thank you. This episode of LA Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health Podcast.